Welcome to HBW Insights Over-the-Counter Podcast. I'm Hannah Daniel, HBW's U.S. health and wellness reporter, and I'll be your host for today's episode of Over-the-Counter. You'll also hear David Ridley, EU senior editor for HBW Insight, hosting other episodes of Over-the-Counter. Together, we explore the latest issues in consumer health and cosmetics across the U.S. and EU. We speak to industry experts and executives about market trends and hot-button issues within the OTC, dietary supplement, and cosmetics industries. In this episode, I speak to Barbara Kochanowski and David Spangler from the Consumer Healthcare Products Association about OTC monograph reform. The old OTC monograph system was reimagined as a part of the 2020 CARES Act passed in the early stages of the pandemic. Designed to streamline and modernize the OTC monograph system, the results have been slow as the FDA has had most of its attention on the pandemic. But as the agency hires more staff, Spangler says that we should expect to see a faster-moving FDA in the next three years. Spangler and Kochanowski also talk about the efficacy of the reforms and how they have helped to educate their members about the changes. Barbara, David, welcome to the show. Do you mind giving the listeners just a quick introduction um, to who you are and what you do? Hi, Hannah. This is David Spangler. I'm uh, with the Consumer Healthcare Products Association, where I lead government affairs, legal, and policy. And hi, Hannah. I'm Barb Kochanowski, also at CHPA, and I'm the Senior Vice President for Regulatory and Scientific Affairs. Well, it's wonderful to have you two on the podcast. I know we have interviewed you and featured you on HBW Insight quite a bit. So I appreciate you taking the time to speak to me about OTC monograph reform. So to start us off, do you mind just going over an overview of the reform system, as well as why it was overhauled in the first place as a part of the 2020 CARES Act? Sure. So let's start by just thinking about and making sure we understand the OTC drug space. So give or take, about two-thirds of OTC medicines are under OTC monographs at FDA. The remaining third, give or take, again, this is very rough, are under new drug applications or abbreviated new, new drug applications. So not all OTCs are in this monograph reform space, but many, the vast majority, are. And what the law does is, I'll talk about three themes. It cleaned up the pre-2020 world, It addressed a lot of things that we put under the banner of streamlining and speed at FDA and for industry. And then third, created an innovation path for these monograph products. Again, you've got the innovation path for prescription on prescription switches, but those are new drug applications. Today, we're talking exclusively about monograph. So theme number one, that cleanup of the pre-2020 world. So existing monographs, or the pre-2020 world, the monograph process had gotten slower and slower and slower from its 1972 start to 2020. About 20% of monographs had never been finished. Changes to monographs were extremely slow. And you had a lot of frustration. And that frustration, not only in regulated industry and not only at FDA, but outside stakeholders, taking the reins themselves to force change. So you had sunscreens, just sunscreens, not all OTC drugs, creating their own little path for sunscreens to come in from Europe 
None have, but they were trying. But that was a, a separate change in law just for sunscreens. Or you had the Natural Resources Defense Council suing the FDA about not finalizing the antibacterial antimicrobial monograph and winning an FDA then operating under a court-ordered deadline. So this is no way to run a railroad. We definitely needed to address this system that had rusted shut. So the new law changes that. Existing monographs move from being in the Code of Federal Regulation to administrative orders, which are housed at FDA. And tentative final monographs, those unfinished monographs, those were just deemed done, final, in place as they existed as tentative, as proposed regulations. The one exception to that, there are a number of ingredients that we refer to in shorthand as category three. This means that FDA has not made a final determination on their status as generally recognized as safe and effective. Those FDA will get to when they get to them. But streamlining, um, or I'm sorry, cleaning up the pre-2020 world. Second theme, streamlining and speed. By turning these regulations into administrative order, rather than having to go through the rulemaking process where you publish a proposed rule at the Federal Register, you get comments, then FDA has to go to OMB and get it cleared. Um, instead, with the administrative order process, all of that is housed within FDA itself, within the drug center. So it takes away multiple layers of clearance. A story we were told during the, the process of negotiating changes uh, an FDA official told Dr. Kochnowski and myself, you know, I have reviewers that can sign off on a multi-billion dollar cancer curing drug, but yet if I want to say change a semicolon for a wart remover, I've got to go to the White House. Does that make sense? And the answer is no, it did not. So streamlining speed, administrative orders rather than notice and comment rulemaking. The other thing that came with streamlining and speed is more resources to FDA. There were roughly 30 or so full-time equivalents dedicated to monograph work at the outset. Uh, <clears throat> there's now a user fee program in place that started at 22 million. It'll build up to the low 30s before inflation by year five. That will enable FD FDA over the five-year period to hire, give or take, around 100 new people. So rather than 30, we'll have about 130, 140 people working on monograph issues. The last theme, innovation. So again, you've got switches. Those are NDA. So we're talking on innovations though that might think, make, make something easier to swallow or might add a new indication to an existing ingredient or might combine two ingredients that uh, people had not historically, with the outset of the OTC review monograph process, thought to combine, uh, or a, a new novel, novel dosage form for an existing ingredient. So for this innovation pathway, companies can submit an OTC monograph order request. You'll hear that at the acronym called an OMOR, but an OTC monograph order request. So this is a company going to FDA saying, we have a new idea, we want to change something in a monograph, Here's our data package, and away they go. Uh, there was a draft guidance on meetings for this put out just here about two months ago. Uh, we submitted comments on that. Malcolm wrote a story about that, your colleague. 
Um, but that's the innovation path. And that is the background. So you mentioned that part of the idea for this reform was to have some of the monographs kind of come out of this limbo that they were stuck in for a while. Have we seen that yet? Well, one of the uncertainties that companies and FDA live with is unfinished monographs. And um, David mentioned the monographs. This, these documents contain the ingredients that may be used in our medicines and include things like formulation and labeling information. So for over 40 years that our system has been in place, approximately 20% of these monographs have remained unfinished and that just provides a lot of uncertainty. So OMUFA, the legislation, provides a path to fix this situation. David mentioned that monographs will be converted to administrative orders, and that makes it much more efficient to amend or finalize uh, these documents. And we've already seen part of this. The law actually, when passed, finalized some ingredients, and we use the term generally recognized as safe and effective. Um, and these ingredients had been labeled with a tentative status. The law actually moved some of these ingredients to a final status, thereby providing even more certainty. But there are other ingredients that need more work, and that includes a review of existing data and the support for generally recognized as safe and effective. And this will involve a public process of providing FDA with data review. This part of the process has not started yet, but we expect to work with our members to submit data in support of these ingredients so that FDA has a comprehensive data package to review. And we expect this to continue over the years ahead under the, under the legislation. So have you seen some of your members start to take advantage of this system or are people more hesitant to test the waters, kind of waiting for other people to be the guinea pig in the new system? It's, um, it's a slower startup than, than you might imagine. Being a new user fee bill and um, new monies coming in, there's been everything as basic a, as starting to collect the new money. And then for FDA, uh, building infrastructure. And so we've always known that the first few years of a MUFA has FDA focused very internally. Um, they're building infrastructure, IT systems. David mentioned hiring new staff. They did. They have made some progress on that, but with the pandemic, of course, hiring is not where they they would have liked or or toward goal. And so, we did advise our members to do some preparation work, though. So, in terms of taking advantage of the system, we know that ultimately things like data will be needed to submit to assure. Um, finalized status on ingredients. So assembling data, checking on their facility registrations, which are the basis for the user fees that they must pay. And we also know many companies are really thinking hard about innovation. And there's no way to see this. This isn't a public um, view to innovation, but um, it's also likely companies are starting to request meetings with FDA, which is also something that's very exciting under the new legislation where we didn't have this opportunity before. So it's, it's safe to say that they're starting, but not much of the process is publicly uh, visible. Yeah, we actually published a story about the types of meetings when the guidance was released. So I will link to that in the article that comes out with this podcast in case listeners want to learn more. 
I hope you're enjoying this episode of Over the Counter. Make sure to follow Pharma Intelligence on SoundCloud, Spotify, Apple Podcasts, or Google Podcasts to get notified about the latest episodes. Also, don't forget to check out our HBW Insights publication at hbw.pharmaintelligence.informa.com for all of the latest health, beauty, and wellness news. Now, back to the interview. So, are there still clarifications that need to be made to the monograph reform system that are potentially making people hesitate to submit OMORs? There's another guidance that should be coming out by summer about the kind of information that one must submit when requesting a meeting. And then the goals letter that that David mentioned as well is um, is full of the kind of things that FDA has to do and how they'll be measured. And all of these things will be clarified as we start to use the process. And so we're really just at the very, very forefront of um, starting to engage with FDA. So I don't think there's anything that's lacking clarification right now. It's more the schedule going forward will continue to teach us how FDA wants to interact and and use the process. And and we'll be able to give feedback on that as well and, and all learn as we go. So two new or changed pieces of the monograph system are user fees as well as a public-facing dashboard and, you know, reports about what's going on within the monograph system. So do you have opinions about these changes and do you think they will more effectively streamline the process or maybe push other companies to pursue different types of applications such as new drug applications? Let's go in reverse order. So on your last question, you, you talked about the choice between new drug applications versus monograph. I do think that's going to be very case by case. You know, on the pro go the new drug application side, there is greater data protection. There is the prospect of getting three years of exclusivity when you do human clinical studies for a, a different or new indication. Uh, and there's there's a lot of certainty in terms of you know, there's always, you don't know exactly what data is FDA is going to need, but there's certainly in terms of understanding exactly how the process works. On the monograph side, though, you do have significantly lower user fees. You, at least hypothetically, should have a lower burden in terms of the studies you're submitting in terms of the level of detail. Uh, and so it could be that for some more modest innovation, you think that's going to be the quicker, more efficient path. So I think there's going to be a role for both. And that's part of what I talked about at the Food and Drug Law Institute's webinar here two weeks ago uh, in early May. Um, You do have to make a choice and you do have to think about how important is keeping your data confidential, um, you know, throughout versus in a monograph world because it is about general recognition of safety and effectiveness. At some point, when FDA proposes that amendment to the monograph, that data does become public. That's part of of general recognition. So there are some choices that one would need to make at the outset. And that's one of the reasons that this meeting guidance is so important, because companies need to be able to plan which which is going to be the smartest move for the product they have in mind. Your next question was on the, the dashboard or forecast. So that was a really important element of the new law so that yes in the past there was the semi-annual regulatory agenda 
But a lot of times those dates just simply never were hit. By switching to an administrative order process, where it's within the drug center at FDA, they have more control. So we really wanted insight into what did they think? Are the things equal? Yes, some safety issue could arise, but but if to the extent they can plan it out, what do they think they're going to be prioritizing in the next three years? So having that annual forecast published each fall is really important to industry so they know how to prioritize their own work in terms of if it's going to be a question of finalizing the status of an ingredient, what sort of safety information do they think they're going to need to generate where there might be some gap and how it's been documented? Or if they know that FDA is going to be working on a label change and they have a strong view of what that label change could or should be, you know, they want to be getting their their case ready for supporting what they what the company thinks the label change should be. So really, really important to see that first one come out last October, and we'll be watching every October as it's updated. Your third question was on fees. So yes, so if you are a facility that manufactures OTC monograph products in finished form, so this isn't the active pharmaceutical ingredient supply um, makers, it isn't the, the raw materials, it isn't the packaging components, it's the, the finished products. If you're manufacturing those, then yes, you have to pay a, a fee. If you're a contract manufacturing organization only, i.e. your name isn't on that product, somebody else's name is on that product, then you are paying two-thirds of a fee. Now, we know since the institution of the first fee now over a year ago, we're now in year two, uh, there were a lot of companies that weren't prepared. We had tried to do a lot of outreach ourselves. Uh, ourselves, FDA did a lot of outreach. There were certainly any number of professional societies, uh, trade publications like yours, writing about it. So there was certainly ample notice if you were, unless you were trying not to pay attention. But there were companies that were surprised and were saying, wait, I'm small. Why am I paying the same size fee as a great big giant company? And the answer is, you're not. Those companies have more than one facility. You could have a large company that has four, five, seven, eight facilities. You might have one small company that doesn't even have a facility that uses exclusively a contract manufacturing organization, which again is paying about is paying a two-thirds of the of the brand or the store brand facility fee. In addition, if you file an OTC monograph order request, there is a modest fee attached to that. When FDA is calculating its fees every year, they don't include those in calculating what their revenue estimate is, because especially in the early years, we knew there wouldn't be very many of those and they would be unpredict too unpredictable. And FDA, obviously, in setting up a user fee program, you're hiring new people, you're building new systems, you're, you're incurring year on year costs. So you don't want a lot of variability in the income stream if you're the government. And we certainly understood and respected that. That makes sense. Um, I apologize for interrupting you uh, during that, but um, I appreciate all your answers and how you, you know, laid them out step by step or question by question. Uh, but that did bring up another question that I just thought of. Um, and, you know, I was wondering if you could talk a little bit about how you are training and preparing the members that you work with to engage with this system. Sure. Um, as as 
David noticed, noted we have been at the table since the beginning negotiating um, these arrangements, you know, with FDA and the, the conditions un under OMUFA. And so we've had a long history of interacting with our companies and providing background information, likewise with other trade associations as well, to get the word out, to try to make sure people understand the principles behind OTC monograph reform. And then, of course, since the law has been passed and implemented, we've done webinars to inform our members. We have given talks at various meetings, uh, RAPS, FDLI, different conferences where we've been invited to speak about not just the history, but also how things how things are going and um, really want to make sure that FDA's webinars as well get promoted. They've had through their small business Assistance Association, um, a lot of good information out to stakeholders. And so it, it is amazing, as David said, that some people are still just learning about OTC monograph reform and the user fees that come with it. But there are a lot of opportunities for education on, on the actual legislation and implementation. So do you have any final thoughts about OTC monograph reform that you'd like to share with our listeners? I think in closing, especially as we look towards years three, four, and five of the five-year authorization, so not so much this year, but next year and the two years after that, uh, folks need to be prepared for a faster-moving FDA because there will be more people working on these monograph issues. Some of the backlog and net negative capacity that they have in years one and two will be gone. So I think folks need to be actively engaged with organizations to just get ready for that. That would be the biggest. And the other, I do think, you know, our American consumers are definitely going to be the ultimate beneficiaries of the fact that we now have a more nimble system uh, where FDA can get to the business of appropriately regulating these medicines to, to the benefit of everybody. There. It's a long history of our industry making voluntary commitments and voluntary changes to over-the-counter medicines that FDA should now be able to use this new legislation to implement uh, firmly and get it into the monograph system. So we're far less reliant on, on voluntary efforts and we have FDA truly regulating the industry as, as it should be. And that's the real public health benefit here. So we're really looking forward to FDA starting to put out some of these safety-related uh, proposed orders so we can get on with those changes. All right. Well, Barbara, David, thank you so much for your insight and for joining me on the podcast today. Our pleasure. You're welcome. Over the Counter is a podcast by Informa Pharmaceutical Insights. If you'd like to learn more about this topic, check out HBW Insights. There you can find any articles that we mentioned in the podcast and other articles on the subject. This podcast and others by Informa Pharma Intelligence are available on Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, SoundCloud, TuneIn, and Spotify Podcasts. So make sure to follow to get the latest updates on when new podcasts are published. Thank you again for listening and be on the lookout for more over-the-counter episodes.